It's a good way to start. Power. That's a word that conjures up a lot of feelings and thoughts for each of us, probably, even as we hear it spoken out loud. We hear of it in the news a lot, don't we? Abuses of power, displays of power, speaking truth to power, fighting the power, people being overpowered. Within the lexicon of the church, this is a word which we probably have some comfort and maybe some discomfort. Of course, it takes up a lot of space in our singing. We saw that this morning in some of the songs that we sang, and there were words that, ones that came to mind, right? All, how, all hail the power of Jesus' name. The first song that came to mind was a song that we would sing a lot in the church that we were a part of, um, Break Every Chain. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. But in my experience, and maybe yours is differently, we don't tend to use the word power to talk about ourselves as much. It's usually about the power of, of God, the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit. And this can vary differently based on your tradition, based on your come from, but I, I don't remember hearing us talk a lot about my, my own power. Maybe, maybe it was there and I missed it. Maybe it was just assumed that I had it and that was that. Honestly, the, the only axiom that I remember uh, comes from my, my upbringing of comic books and hearing Uncle Ben tell a young Peter Parker that axiom. Anyone remember it? Yes. What is it? Tell me. With great power comes great responsibility. And I, I love, thank you, Joe. I, I assume you chose the, uh, the image for the bulletin this morning, the infinity gauntlet uh, on the front. So that's great. Uh, totally a missed opportunity for illustration on my part. So that'll be for another sermon on power for another day. But maybe there's something to that. With great power comes great responsibility. Today, I have the joy of being invited to begin this short series with you all, uh, titled Surrender, Money, Sex, and Power. Your pastor, Joe, thought it'd be wise to have me speak on power and not sex and money. Um, I don't know why, um, but I'm just going to, he, he's going to be speaking on sex next week, so, you know, take of that what you will. Um, but perhaps a clue to this could be my conviction that, that I, and he and I have talked a lot about this. Joe knows me well. We've taken classes together at St. Mary's my conviction that there is incredible potential power within the church. There's incredible power within the church, within the people of God. I've seen it, and I've felt it. I've exercised it. I've benefited from it. I've also been harmed and dismayed and disillusioned and embarrassed by it. So the organization I work for, uh, I serve as the executive director for an organization called Hope Springs. Um, we were started about 13 years ago. Um, uh, actually, Grace Fellowship, whom we prayed for earlier, was one of the key founding partners of this organization as a way to see the church better respond to the epidemic of HIV AIDS here in the Baltimore region. And we believe as an organization, in the capacity, in the power, the potential power of the church to see hope and healing come to so many who are living with HIV, who have been, who are living with the stigma surrounding the virus, and also um, to addressing those pervasive health disparities that so many face in our city. And I've seen the church respond well to this epidemic. I want to begin by bearing witness to the good that I have seen. Uh, I have seen 
the church uh, love in action, but I've also seen and heard the church respond poorly, exercising its power rather, in, rather than exercising it to serve, exercising it to exclude, to marginalize, to other those simply because they have a virus present in their bodies. And unfortunately, perhaps maybe, I don't know if it's worse or not, but I've seen this church simply not respond at all. I believe they call that potential energy in the world of physics, right? You can respond. You have the power to do something. It's right there, but it's not put to use, to be stuck, to be frozen, to be apathetic, or even just to be distracted by other things that seem more important. Of course, I'm not the only one who feels or sees this. I'm sure that you get the same news here that I get, right? We hear of ongoing scandals uh, in the church amongst our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers, the abuse and failure to hold leaders accountable, situations like that of Willow Creek and too many other prominent evangelical churches, Um, I'm a part of the Episcopal branch of the church, and my own folks, the Episcopalians, are certainly plagued by more of the same. In fact, uh, my bishop just sent me an article last week. It was from the Religious News Service entitled, How Willow Creek Exposed Our Sins, as a way of highlighting ongoing conversations in our own church about what we can actively do to combat the abuse of power. I wanted to read a quote uh, from that article that I found very compelling. Now, he names the evangelical church specifically, but I'm afraid the issue spans across uh, the denominational divide. So he says this, We need a new conversation about power. The fundamental ailments of the evangelical church today, the fundamental ailment of the evangelical church today is toxic power. Toxic power is anchored in prideful autonomy and manifested in forms of competition, coercion, domination, and abuse. It is power and strength for the sake of control. Toxic power. Power and strength for the sake of control. Competition, coercion, domination, abuse. And if I could add another word, fear. Friends, these are not Christian words. As we see in our text today, Jesus would respond to this by saying, it is not to be so amongst you. It is not to be so amongst you. In the midst of such bad news about Christians in power, how might we come to see some good news in our text this morning. My conviction is that preaching is not about bad news. It's about good news. Our good news this morning is this. Success in the kingdom is not found in holding on to power and control, but rather by surrendering all of who we are and all of what we have to God and others. Can I say that again? Can I? Is that okay? All right. Sorry, sometimes I'm rhetorical and sometimes not, Um, and you can never tell. It keeps you on your toes. Success in the kingdom is not found in holding on to power and control, but rather by surrendering all of who we are and all of what we have to God and to others. My invitation for us all today 
and I include myself in this invitation, is not to simply give up power. Giving up and surrendering are not the same thing. We'll talk more about that. Nor is it to simply build and amass power to seek change. I'm inviting us to surrender even our understanding of power altogether and learn to participate in the way power works in the kingdom of God through radical service and through sacrifice. So I'm going to take us a little bit on a kind of a contextual journey to talk about what's going on in Mark's gospel so that we can get, catch ourselves up to the point where these sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, make this seemingly outrageous request of Jesus. So throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for what's to come in Jerusalem. He's been talking about it for multiple chapters, about death, about suffering, and about the cross. He said it again and again, the Son of Man is going to be given up and given over, and he's going to be He's going to be flogged, and he's going to be crucified, and he will rise again on the third day. And it seems as though, especially from our reading perspective, that it's just, it's said, and it's the the disciples don't hear it, or they don't pay attention to it. But he continues to try to make this point. It's difficult for them to understand. I mean, imagine from their perspective, they have been called to follow this incredible, charismatic healer, teacher. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's how Mark starts, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This was the culmination of their hope. People are gathering. A movement has started, and they felt as though they were swept up into the center of it, all around this charismatic and compassionate and loving rabbi. You can imagine them asking when they hear these little tidbits about suffering, what sort of place do suffering and difficulty and death have in the kingdom? We've had enough of that. We've been an oppressed people. We've been beaten down. Don't you remember? Why, why more of this? This kingdom movement, this revolution, appears as though, as we start to step into this part of the story, that it's starting to struggle. The forerunner, that, that ascetic and eccentric baptizer named John, he's been taken political prisoner, and he was beheaded. Peter finally named that this Jesus, this man, these 12 men that so many others have been following with abandon, he is the Messiah. He is the one who, can we say it, will make Israel great again. And we can't tell anyone? This is the worst campaign ever. And what's this? This Messiah will be rejected by the very people he's coming to liberate and and be killed? I mean, let's be honest. Peter is saying what we're all thinking, even though he was the one that got rebuked, right? No, like that's not what the kingdom is about. This shall not be, Lord. And suddenly, the man who seemed to be Jesus' number one, Peter, has been shouted down, even called Satan, not a good sign, by Jesus himself. So imagine amongst the disciples, they, they had seen this, this sort of loudmouth, outspoken leader, de facto leader of the disciples, Peter, being told to get behind me, Satan. Who's the greatest now? The disciples would continue to argue about it, even along the road. Even as Jesus would reframe dynamics of power, whether he would be talking about divorce and remarriage or children being held up as 
as central in the kingdom, or about rich men who need to just sell everything they have, or about how family dynamics work. He's been tipping the whole system on its head. So this catches us up to this passage where Jesus is reminding the disciples again, right before what Joe read for us in verses 32 through 34. Listen to this. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Enter the sons of thunder, right? Which, by the way, incredible tag team wrestling name, right? Can we agree on that? Like, that's just the best. Um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, I'm going to give you a little bit more context if you'll, if you'll forgive me. We continue, I continue to be amazed by the, the diverse backgrounds of these 12 disciples. I mean, have you ever considered who all these different people who were following Jesus? These two really stand out as they were likely well-off and well-connected young men for their time. They were the, the sons of this guy, Zebedee, who had a fishing business, people worked for him, and perhaps he also had a well-connected mom that got them stuff. Um, in Matthew's gospel, who records the same account, it's actually not the sons who asked Jesus, she does. Hey, Jesus, my boys, they need a really good job. Can you help them out? But these guys are all about power. Their world has been power. They have it. They have status, and they want to use it. (laughs) At one point, I just love this. This is another story for another day. Noticing that Jesus can do the miraculous, they're like, hey, can we go burn up some Samaritans, you know, like Elijah style? Like this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, fire from heaven. They love power. They get power. They live in a powerful world. And so it's in keeping with their MO to come right up to Jesus, the Messiah, the, the healer, the teacher, the deliverer, and ask him to do for them whatever they want. They're used to this. These are the guys, we all know people like this. Yes, you work with people like this. Yeah, can I get an amen? Yeah, I want you to do what I'm asking for you to do, and I don't want you to ask questions about it. I just want you to do it because that's how I'm used to things working in the world. (laughs) I'm thinking of people right now. I need to stop. Um, So they ask Jesus for the two coveted positions, right? Can we sit at your left and at your right when you come into your glory? Meaning, when you win this thing, when you restore Israel to all her glory, we want to be there with you sharing in the victory and the power. We want access to the C-suite, We want to be at the top with you. Now, at first, this just seems arrogant, right? I mean, some of you are like, oh, my God, the nerve of them asking about this. This is why the other disciples get so mad at them for seemingly going around their backs to jockey for positions of power. That's why they start arguing about this. And perhaps this is true. But I wonder, 
For these sons of thunder who were used to only getting what they wanted because of their position, that they were starting to get afraid. They were seeing things not going like they thought. And this Jesus keeps talking about suffering. And already the lead guy, Peter, has been kicked, you know, kicked to the back for a little while. Because he was saying that suffering has no place in the kingdom. I start to feel a little sorry for the sons of Zebedee. It's the only way they knew how to exist in the world. They could see their ability to maintain status in the kingdom slipping away, and they were afraid that they'd get left behind. So they see an opportunity, they go for it, hoping that they'll be taken care of. This is what clinging to power looks like when the kingdom is not what you thought it would be. This is self-preservation. Help us sit at the top with you, Jesus. Maybe if we do that, this whole suffering thing won't get to us. Or maybe, maybe we'll be there to take over if you get taken out. Jesus' response is, per usual, brilliant. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup and be baptized with my baptism? I don't grant those sort of positions. (laughs) It's almost as if Jesus is saying, that's above my pay grade. Jesus is showing his disciples once again that power doesn't work like that in the kingdom of God. Again, our good news is that success in the kingdom isn't found by holding on to power and control, but rather surrendering all of who we are and all of what we have to God and to others. We don't gain authority in the kingdom by seeking to preserve our honor and our authority. We don't double down and circle the wagons. We don't focus on self-preservation. We gain it by giving it away giving it away in self-denying surrender, all for the sake of others. We don't give up our power. We surrender our power. We give it away. We do this simply because this is what Jesus does for us. He says to be at the top is to be at the bottom. To be lifted up in glory is actually to be lifted up on a cross. Jesus' cup is, is suffering. There's a shorthand for talking about suffering. His baptism, also a shorthand for talking about um, death and destruction. This is what Jesus' kingdom is about. Because this is what Jesus was about. And this is just incredibly countercultural and it it goes, against, it goes against the world around us, but it also cuts against the grain of our own hearts. Because Jesus had the power at heaven at his disposal and countless opportunities to use his power to lord it over others. Again and again. Indeed, he was tempted by that at the very beginning of his ministry. But instead, he chose to serve even into the point of death, to serve. There's a practice that helps us be aware of our own power and how we're using it. It helps, us, it helps form us into people who are willing to, to last, to be last, willing to suffer, able to drink the cup and be baptized. It's a practice in the active way of surrendering power for the sake of others. The fancy word is this, service. Service. Service is the practice that continues to form us 
more into the image of Christ because it is the intentional act of taking whatever power, whatever resources we have and giving it away for the sake of other people. Service cuts against the grain of our own hearts and of the world around us. Service is the practice that makes us more like Jesus, the servant. I've spent, um, I realize now, a third of my life here in Baltimore, and much of my time has been, sent, has been spent either preparing or leading people to serve in intentional ways in our city. Ten years ago, um, what brought me to Baltimore was to help to start a new church uh, here in the city and served in a variety of ways amongst the church. But my first two summers that I was here, my job was to help to prepare serving experiences for mission teams who were coming in. Uh, many of you know that usually in church planting, how things tend to work is you help try to recruit support both through, through finances and, and partnership and, and mission work um, to help have other churches and different, um, maybe in the city or outside the city, to join in and with you. And so my first summer here, I moved here in May of 2008, um, and we received our first mission team in June of 2008. And I was supposed to be the expert <laughs> in saying, here's how we serve the city that I've lived in less than 30 days. And it was an incredible experience for me to learn, uh, you know, very much in a deep dive, quick sort of manner of what, what's going on in the city, how can we best serve. And the thing that I loved about this is that we were doing this before our church was formally meeting in any sort of public worship gathering. We, we chose not to, we wanted to begin in service. And so we just started serving wherever we could, uh, schools, uh, in our local park, uh, other local organizations, whoever we could find, with, find to partner with. And one thing that I have found in my experience doing that is that we still fall victim to this insidious trap of lording over, even in our mission work, and being tyrants, even in our desire to serve others. I will tell you, the most difficult people I dealt with were not members of the community. They were pastors of other churches. Just real talk. It was discouraging. I also saw it in myself that I wanted things done my way, how I wanted them, rather than asking first, how do I better serve others? I've also dealt with the aftermath of mission teams when they've had when they've damaged relationships with my own neighbors trying to serve them, and I had to go back and fix it. <laughs> so this, this is something I feel viscerally. Even now, doing what I do, our main mission at Hope Springs is to equip people in the church to serve, to serve in ways that are highly relational, to serve in ways that are not about lording over, but are about being, being last, about serving others and putting their interests first. And so here's how I kind of want to close out our time is um, to offer up a few questions for consideration for us. If we're to serve in a way that's consistent with the way of Jesus, if we're to truly seek to serve others rather than being served, if we're truly committed to this way of Jesus that is about taking the, the lowly path, not lording over, not controlling, not coercing, not, here's an insidious word, influencing, but about serving, there are things that I think, some questions that we can ask that will help better prepare us to serve others. 
So if, you're, if you are a note taker or have been, these might be some good questions for you to write down to come back to later. Um, they've actually been really helpful for me as I've been preparing this week and, and um, thinking about how, how I serve. Here's the first question. Why am I doing this? I know that's kind of a basic question, right? It's the toddler question. Why? But it's a good question. Why am I serving? What is my motivation? Can we get honest about that? It feels good sometimes to serve, and sometimes that's our motivation. I feel better. I feel better about what I have now that I've given some of it away to others. I feel better. Maybe a a better question might be, why am I not doing this? (laughs) What does service look like in your place right now? What opportunities exist for you to serve? But why why am I doing this? What's my motivation? So um, within, I, I don't know, how many of you, by show of hands, are familiar with any sort of like community organizing work? I've done some of that. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. Okay, a couple of you. So um, there's, there's like specific jargon I've learned by working with other community organizers uh, in a lot of what we do, um, that the, 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 name, the name of this is self-interest, right? Um, what is your animating story? What is the thing that gets you going? Why do you serve? You know, I loved it that right before um, we came up here, I was asked the question as we were taking some time to prayer, pray of saying, you know, what's, what's the story that causes you to get to work working with HIV AIDS? Like, why that? You know, it's a great question. You know, I was able to respond and tell a story about how I was present when one of our first, uh, one of our first congregants, when we were doing HIV large-scale testing in Baltimore City, uh, we partnered with um, the University of Maryland and the Institute for Human Virology to do faith-based testing. We were able to see over a thousand people tested for HIV in one day. It had never been done before in the city that we know of. And our church was meeting at a community center at the time, and and I was the church liaison person, which meant that I was there working with the clinical supervisor just to make sure things were running smoothly. We had volunteers who were going out, handing out cards, letting people know they could get tested. And there was a woman who had had just joined our church. Um, she was in her early 50s, and um, she'd never been tested for HIV before. And she was really nervous. She was there, and she was actually there as a volunteer serving with us, not ever thinking that she should get tested for HIV. And I looked at her and I said, I've never been tested for HIV either. At the times I'm in my mid-20s, I said, can we do that together? Yeah, that would be really good. And so we went, and at the time, they were, they were doing the, you know, they've now got it to where you can get a mouth swab test when you go in, and it takes about 15 minutes to get your results. And those are the longest 15 minutes of her life. But we got to spend them together. We got to sit together and wait and talk and pray and cry. And we committed to one another to say, at the end of the day, whatever our results are, we're together in this. You have a place to belong. We're family. That's part of why I do this. That's part of my story. What's your story? What gets you up and going? Not just, not just to work, not just to raise your family, although that may be some of your, like, what your main mode of service. That's great. But if there are other ways of service, what gets you going? What's your animating story? Why? 
are you doing this? Second question I would say is ask who is last and who is first? This is an important question. Some people call this doing a power analysis, analyzing power. This becomes a difficult thing in the church, I think, because we tend to spiritualize power away in the name of saying, well, there's equal footing at the cross, or every member is a minister sort of thinking. But Jesus had no problem with naming power and its abuses when he saw it. You don't talk about first and last without recognizing that there are some who are first and some who are last. There are some who have more power, more position, more status than other people. Who's first? Who's last? Where do people sit? Who has power in this church community? Who has power in the surrounding neighborhood, in your workplace? What power do you personally have? Again, don't assign judgments to it. This is the thing I think we also get ourselves in trouble with. We said that power is bad. Power is not bad. Power is Power is, and it can be used in creative ways, and it can be used in destructive ways. Don't assign judgments to it. This is also not a time for you to feel guilty about it. This is also how power is often talked about. Like, I get thrown this my way all the time as a straight, white, male, right? Y'all heard about white guilt before? Anybody? Yeah, I feel it a lot. That's for me to deal with. But it's not about feeling guilty about having power. It's about naming power that I do, that I live in a society where by virtue of my skin tone, by virtue of what's in my bank account, by virtue of where I live geographically, by virtue of other parts of my story, I have more power than other people do. It just is. Name it. So much of my own leadership development, especially recently, has been learning how to name the reality of my own power and dealing with my discomfort with that which leads to another question. So again, why am I doing this? Who's first? Who's last? And then how can I leverage my power in the service of other people? So it's not just naming the power that you may have, but how can I leverage my power in the service of others? Again, I serve as an executive director for an organization that focuses on HIV AIDS, which is a problem here in Baltimore that affects people who are mostly not like me in just about every identifiable respect, right? I'm a white, straight, cisgender, middle-class male in his mid-30s. HIV affects mostly people aged 13 to 25 and people who are 50 and older. It affects people who are sexual and gender minorities, people who are living in poverty. I have a lot of power just by virtue of being who I am, where I am. That's an important thing to recognize. It's an important thing for us all to recognize. Also knowing that certain people listen to me because of who I am. They listen to me because of how I look. They listen to me because of what color my skin is and because of the language I speak and how I speak it. I, um, if you'll indulge, indulge me for one more story. I, um, so part of my, my background is also in, in worship leading, so I did that a lot in the church that I served in and Um, got connected with a uh, church that was really leading out a lot and having conversations around how are we more multi-ethnic and multicultural in our worship expressions, right? Recognizing that one day we're all going to be worshiping with a lot of people that ain't like us, right? Like every tribe, every tongue, every nation. 
So let's, let's practice a little bit before we get there, right? <laughs> like, let's experience, let's bring some of heaven to earth now and experience that together. And so I was invited to be a part of this conference, and they had like a kind of a pre, pre-discussion, like a panel workshop beforehand. And I was invited there, and, um, and people of all different backgrounds, you know, African-American, there's a guy who, when you look at him, you're like, oh, that's like... That's totally a white dude, but he's like a secret Latino. Like he's just, because he was raised by, by um, missionary parents in the Dominican Republic. So he can speak Spanish so well. He also knows sign language. They had people, there was a, this guy who was like way into rap and gospel music, but he lives in Portland. So I was like, what's that about? How's that working for you? So it was just this whole very diverse group of people. And we were sitting there talking. And anytime I wanted to say something, I would, I would qualify and be like, listen, like, I know I'm just like the white dude with plaid and, and a beard in the room, but hold on, and would say something. And I would qualify. I know I'm the white guy that, like, plays Chris Tomlin, but let me, you know. And, and I would just kind of continue to, to do that. And this, this guy who I mentioned, the black guy from Portland, who already told me that he liked me because I looked like his people uh, from Portland. Um, <laughs> so he's wearing plaid. Um, and uh, anyway, he... Uh, he said, his name was Jelani. He said, Derek, I'm going to stop you right there. We had like a Kanye, Taylor Swift moment. You know what I'm saying? He's like, hold on, hold on. I'm going to let you finish, but let me just say. And he said, Derek, you need to stop apologizing for who you are. You need to stop apologizing for who God made you to, me, and he made you to be. And he said, listen, I'm black. People expect me to talk about being multicultural. You're white. You don't have to. And it got about that quiet in the room, right there. And that was the beginning of me recognizing I don't have to apologize for who I am. I don't have to feel guilty about who I am, but I have a responsibility to leverage all of who I am to bring it to bear on the the world for the sake of others, for the sake of others. And he told me, he said, Derek, you can talk to people I can't talk to. You can be heard by people that won't hear me. And you can pass the mic to me when I need to speak. Jesus had power and position. And the way he responded was to leverage his power for the sake of others through service. How can you use your power, your position, your, your uh, gifts for the sake of other people? All right, one more question. Right? Why am I doing this? Who's first? Who's last? How can I leverage my power in the service of others? The last question is, what will it cost me? What will it cost me? Are you able to drink and and be willing? Are you able to drink the cup and are you willing to be baptized? When people decide to use their power for the sake of others, the lorded over tyrant people don't like it. James would go on to drink the cup and be baptized. He was the first of the disciples to be martyred by Herod. He not only fulfilled this role, but his death also exposes how the lorded over tyrant rulers do things. What happens? It cost him his life. What will radical surrendered service cost you? Cost me. And are we willing to lose it? A good question that may help uncover this cost is to ask, where am I afraid of losing power, of losing influence, of losing status? So I want to end us in an exercise that may help us in this act of surrender. 
Remember, surrender is not giving up. It's giving over. It's yielding to God and a commitment to bring all that you are and all that you have to God and to others. So I would encourage you right now, if you'll indulge me in just a time of some reflective prayer, and then I will voice a prayer for us to close our time out. Because the best part about this sermon is not that it's about to be over, although that may be true for some of you. But the best part is that we can actually take some of this and put it into practice in our actual lives today, tomorrow. And so I want to ask you some questions to guide our prayer. If it's helpful for you to close your eyes to do that, I loved the posture that that Joe had us in of a, a posture of surrender, hands up. That may be helpful for some of you. It's, it's sometimes helpful to pray with our bodies, but we're praying with our, with our hearts and our mouths. So here's the first question that will guide our prayer is simply this. What power do you know you have right now? It can be something very simple. Perhaps you have people who report to you at work. That's power. Perhaps you are an incredibly gifted storyteller and people listen to you. That's power. Perhaps you have additional income that's discretionary for you and for your family. That's power. Name it. So just name that one one thing. Maybe just hold that out in front of you in your mind's eye. Keeping that in mind, call to attention, who do you know in your life that could benefit from the use of that power, from the surrender of that power, from the gift of that power and service? Who do you know? Who comes to mind? Look at their face in your mind's eye. Try to imagine where you might see them in the coming days. Once you've done that, let's take your hands, and I'm going to do this as well, Maybe just hold them up as an act, almost like you're offering these things to the Lord. The power that you've been given and the person that has come to mind that you've been given in your mind. Hold them up. And I'm going to pray this over us. most merciful, loving, and servant God. We desire true greatness in your kingdom. We know this means serving others with what you've given us. Thank you for giving us power. Thank you for your spirit who continues to grant us power even beyond our natural abilities. We surrender this specifically named power to you now.
most merciful, loving, and servant God. It is our desire to serve and not be served. Grant us the privilege to serve those this week whom we have named before you. We hold them to you now. We know you care for them more than we ever could. We know this path forward is a difficult one. Holy Spirit, grant us the strength to follow the example of Jesus in suffering and in self-giving and raise us again to life so that we may continue to serve others as you have served the world. And all God's people said, amen.